And let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Studying the book of Romans on Sunday morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, they'll put one into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you uh, today. Romans chapter 15, picking things up in verse 1. Paul writes by the Spirit, and he says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the Lord, uh, uh, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O uh, Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. And now may the God of hope fill you, uh, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together now. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you ahead of time for what it is intended to accomplish in each of our lives to fashion in some way our thinking, our doing, Lord, our feeling, our uh, processing of life and, and uh, perspectives, and certainly our spirit as well. And we pray that you would speak to us now through your Word, not only to adjust and to strengthen and redirect who and what we are today, but that these truths, Lord, would uh, impact our lives for the remainder of our pilgrimage for your glory. And so speak to us from your throne, through your word we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've seen in our last two uh, studies in the book of Romans, here in uh, chapters 14, uh, verse 1, all the way through what we've just read, chapter 15, verse 13. The Apostle Paul is addressing the issue of how Christians are uh, both to view and to practice what Paul calls uh, doubtful things in chapter 14, verse uh, 1. And, uh, and, he, and, and Paul addresses these things in order that uh, neither the church there in Rome or any church, including this church, would uh, make these things, these doubtful things, the primary focus of the church, 
or to allow these things to become a source of division or dispute within a church. And they are uh, readily a source of division and dispute within any church if we're not properly instructed related to them. Doubtful things, or as we've been calling them, Christian liberties, they refer to uh, practices or uh, that God's Word does not address definitively or conclusively. Uh, things that Christians are free to engage in or not engage in as, as they see fit. There's a freedom to do so, a freedom not to do so that is given us by the Word and, and by uh, the Holy Spirit. And in the church there in Rome, those issues that were the uh, potential for division, doubtful things, or Christian liberties that uh, they were struggling with was what was the best day of the week in order to worship the Lord on, and whether it was uh, proper to eat meat or be a vegetarian in that pagan Roman culture when so much of the meat that ended up being sold at the meat markets each day uh, came from uh, being sacrificed to idols, and there was no guarantee that you might not buy meat and eat meat that had been sacrificed that morning uh, to an idol. The more contemporary issues that we deal with as Christians today concerning liberties, they center on the use of alcohol or fashion or clothing, uh, the possession and the use of wealth, uh, entertainment choices in terms of music or uh, what we read, what we put before our, uh, our eyes, and these kind of things. And again, I want to, uh, uh, is, is this is our final study dealing with this issue, uh, to reemphasize the fact that God, Paul is not talking about commandments here. Commandments are always to be obeyed by the strong brethren, by the weak brethren, whatever we think of any liberties. Uh, and he's talking about uh, something very different here, Christian liberties, doubtful things. Remember as well that Paul uh, described the strong brother uh, concerning Christian liberties as the Christian who has a more developed sense of freedom concerning Christian liberties. And the weak brother uh, in this regard is the Christian who possesses kind of a, a stricter or a a, a narrower sense of freedom concerning Christian liberties. And uh, Paul, as he's done in chapter 14, the first half of it, he speaks to us and gives us general principles about liberties. And then as we saw last time, the latter portion of chapter 14, he speaks about uh, the great motivation for obeying God, whether the weaker brother or the stronger brother in this regard, uh, and uh, for doing so and obeying what God calls us to do here, and that is the motivation of love. And now in this final section, and as he carries the subject into chapter 15, he provides us uh, the great example for uh, the exercise of liberties and looking and caring about the rest of the body of Christ and, and uh, by making Jesus our example in all of this. Now notice in uh, verse uh, 1 that Paul restates his principle concerning how unity is to be maintained uh, in a local church to, uh, despite the presence of very, very different uh, convictions concerning uh, Christian liberties. He tells us there that the strong are to bear with the scruples of the weak. In other words, the strong in, uh, in this regard, those who feel they have a greater freedom concerning Christian liberties, they're to forego the expression 
of those liberties in the presence of Christians who have a stricter view of, of those liberties. And they might then be stumbled by watching the, the stronger brother engage in those uh, liberties. And again, why does Paul call upon the strong to yield in this issue rather than the weak? Why does he uh, call on them to, to budge here on the issue? And as we saw last time, it's for the simple reason that uh, the weak cannot budge on the issue uh, without genuinely feeling that they're sinning in doing so, as Paul brings out in chapter 14, verse uh, 23. But the strong can uh, curtail the expression of their liberties without uh, damaging their conscience at all. So for the strong to say, no, I'm not going to engage in this liberty in the presence of a weaker brother, it may be uh, annoying, it may be an inconvenience uh, to yield to the, the convictions of the weaker brother, but it really poses no threat at all to our faith, it poses no threat at all to our conscience. It doesn't do any damage to us at all. And and so Paul calls on the strong, and he includes himself among the strong, to out of a motivation of Christian love, to yield to the weak in, in this regard. And uh, so Christian unity is to have a higher priority in every single one of our lives as Christians than, than the exercise of any Christian liberty that might then stumble uh, somebody else. I think it's important to notice once again that the Apostle Paul in verse 1, he clearly numbers himself among the strong on the issue of Christian liberties. And that might surprise us, knowing a little bit about the background that the Apostle Paul came from as a Christian. He not only came from a Jewish background, and when he's talking about the stronger and the weaker brother in all of these chapters, he's, he's essentially talking about two groups. He's talking about the Gentiles who tended to be stronger in these issues in terms of freedoms, and the Jews were the weaker brethren in this regard. And so Paul comes out of not only a Jewish background, but he comes out of the strictest section of uh, Judaism in that day in terms of legalism in terms of uh, restrictions. He was a Pharisee, uh, he tells us in his letter uh, to the, the uh, church at, uh, at Philippi. He declares himself to be a Hebrew of the Hebrew concerning the law of Pharisee. And yet Paul coming from uh, being deeply steeped into this weaker kind of, uh, of view in terms of, of liberties, he now in some work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he comes to see that that's the weaker brother and not the stronger brother. And, and he identifies himself now with the position that is held largely by, by the Gentiles. And I think that, what, that when the Apostle Paul's eyes were opened up uh, upon becoming a Christian, that uh, he realized that Judaism in, in his day, that it had devolved into no longer being supremely about God, no longer being about uh, getting people into a relationship with God, coming into contact uh, with God. But it became all about outward appearances and, and as Jesus said, straining at gnats and, and fighting over absolute inconsequentials. 
uh, things that did not matter at all, and fighting over these things that were inconsequentials out of uh, arrogance, out of pride, out of a lust for power, and, and out of a combative spirit. And that by making these in, inconsequentials the focus of Judaism, that uh, the, uh, the, uh, as, as opposed to being about God, uh, that on, in this uh, path that they were on, that they had essentially hijacked Judaism from God, had made it into something that God had never intended it to be. It was more about keeping up appearances of man-made definitions of how to handle liberties uh, rather than uh, nurturing in people a heart for God. And in doing this, Judaism, both under the Pharisees but in, and under the Sadducees as well, but Paul came out of Phariseeism. I mean, they, they actually became a, a hindrance to people coming into a relationship with God as opposed to helping them uh, do so. And uh, Paul realized that, as he, I have no doubt, as he looked back and said, what we were fighting over, what we were arguing over, what we were debating was just this very kind of thing. And uh, wasting people's time and attention rather than pointing them to God, uh, which, which is what we ought to have been about. Uh, Jesus uh, was blistering in his rebuke of the Pharisees in this regard. Uh, famously in Matthew chapter 23, he declared, to them, <laughs> not behind their back, to them, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also." Elsewhere, he wrote in the declared in the chapter, but woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, uh, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering uh, to do so. Uh, Judaism had not become a clear, vo uh, it was not at that time a clear voice on how to be saved, how to come into a relationship with God. Finally, Jesus also declared, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's how far Jesus saw Judaism under the influence of the Pharisees, how far it had moved away from what God had intended to, it to be. And in no small part, because it had chosen to major on the minors and minor on the majors, to make the great focus of the religion and uh, Judaism to be arguments over these inconsequentials rather than the things that are most important. And I think that when a person comes out of that kind of background, as the Apostle Paul did, uh, they recognize the power of this kind of thing, the danger of this kind of thing, in a way that someone else doesn't. And they look at it and they don't want to spend another moment in their life perpetuating that kind of a representation 
uh, of God. And so Paul looked at it and he said, I don't want to have anything to do with legalism. I don't want to have anything to do with elevating inconsequentials into the place of, uh, of, uh, of, of what is, ought to be significant in, in a, a Christian's life and the gathering of God pe- God's people. And so he openly identified himself with a strong on the issue of, of Christian liberties. He continued to state in in Philippians chapter 3, he said, And what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. And yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That is something, Paul says, that is worthy of the focus of someone who is seeking after God and who uh, knows God. It's also important to realize that what Paul calls uh, upon the strong to do here, that he practiced himself uh, this yielding to the weaker uh, brother and, and accommodating himself to them when in their presence. And Paul not only did it related to Christians, he took it even a step further than what he's asking uh, the, the, uh, them to do, the church in Rome, the specifics of, of uh, Romans chapters 14 and 15, and that is that he took this even to his, into his contact with the unsaved world. Famously in this regard, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win some. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. And here you have the Apostle Paul, and he always did what he calls each of us in this room uh, to do this morning. And he always put people's salvation, people's spiritual welfare above the exercise of any spiritual liberty or freedom. Uh, that he possessed. Paul never ever changed his message, never changed his message in front of any audience that he stood uh, before, but he did adapt his liberties and he did uh, uh, adapt his approach in order to to gain a hearing uh, for the gospel. And so when he preached the gospel to the Jews, he reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, he went to their place of worship, the synagogue. He did so on their day of worship, on the Sabbath, on the Saturday. And when he shared the gospel with the Gentiles, he did not make the Gentile world honor the Sabbath 
And, and he didn't make them come to a synagogue to hear uh, the message of salvation. He went to where they were. He went into the marketplace and preached the gospel to them. He didn't rebuke them for eating BLTs or anything related to their diet. And he never gave them the impression that they had to become a Jew first before they would become uh, a Christian. And all of this and all of these are the marks of someone who loves people, who wants people to be saved, and sees the greatest of our liberties as Christians as inconsequential in comparison to these things, in comparison to people not being stumbled by my life in any way, that they might hear the gospel and take it seriously, or even one who is a Christian would not be stumbled in any way by my life in their uh, walk with the Lord and in their spiritual growth. Paul then puts his finger on and uh, in the latter part of verse 1 and into verse 2 where he says, and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Of course, the great obstacle for the strong in putting aside uh, his or her liberties is what Paul puts his finger on here, and that is selfism. Uh, this elevation of pleasing myself, the big uh, I, me, and my in my life. And this can rise up, and it's like, I have a freedom to do this. I have a right to do this. I'm not going to yield to these kind of, of people. I'm doing them a good by flaunting my liberty in front of them. And Paul, no doubt, had a, a fair amount of that that he was exposed to as well. And there's no doubt that there's uh, many Christians who are in that kind of category and that's who Paul is addressing in, in all of this. And Paul knows that in order for him to ask that the stronger would make a sacrifice for the spiritual good of the weaker, that he would have to provide the stronger with a greater motivation uh, for doing that uh, than even the strength of their uh, flesh or their selfism uh, to exercise their uh, liberties in order to make that sacrifice. And so he gives them the great motivation, and that is the motivation of uh, it being an opportunity to be like Christ in this regard. And so he declares there in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. Those are two words worth circling there, even Christ. The idea is if he did not do it in order to save mankind, uh, then how in the world can uh, we claim to be a Christian and following him, becoming like him, and, uh, and not do the far lesser thing, and that is to crucify myself with regard to some liberty and the exercise of it for some short period of time while in the presence of, of weaker uh, brethren. And, and so Paul here, if, if, if Jesus himself, if he had elevated himself, his big I, me, and my, so to speak, uh, and that had been the single great important thing within his life, not one of us would be saved. He'd have never gone to Garden of Gethsemane, much less than making his way from there to the cross. And, and, uh, and, and, and Jesus is our example in all of this. And again, as we saw last week, but he continues it this week, there's a sanctified shaming in all of this. And you and I may look at it and say, this is not necessary. 
we may look at it and say, well, this is very plain, very simple what Paul is saying. The strong ought to yield to the weak on these issues, and who would argue with it? But Paul brings it up over and over again because he knows that it's not that straightforward for a lot of people. And so there's this sanctified shaming again. And the declaration now of saying, take Jesus' death, burial, his resurrection. Take Gethsemane. Take everything that was hurled against him upon the cross. Everything that he went through in order to provide us with salvation. Salvation for the weaker as well as the stronger. And again, put that on one side of a scale. And then take uh, whatever God asks us to do in the foregoing of some liberty for the sake of the unity and the health of the body of Christ and any individual Christian who Christ died for and put it on the other side of the scale and then see if squawking about giving up some liberty in the light of the consciences of some weaker brother uh, doesn't make us feel uh, foolish and ashamed in the light of what Christ was willing to do to save all of us in, in, com- in comparison. And Paul himself made Christ. You look and you say, why, is Paul, why, why does Paul become the strong in this regard? And yet, uh, as, he, as he spoke so clearly to the Corinthians, how he became all things to all people. What was it? Paul is saying, make me your example related to this. But who was Paul's example? And Paul says, in this regard, my example was none other than Christ himself. He wrote again to the church at Corinth in chapter 10, and he said, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. And just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And then here it is, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. And when Paul uh, quotes there Psalm 69, uh, verse 9, in this regard, there in, in verse 3, he's communicating that if Jesus chose to be faithful, to the will of God the Father. I mean, at such immense expense to himself, uh, then we should not in any way hesitate to, to, at doing the same uh, for, uh, as Christians related to the exercise of, of Christian liberty. Paul goes on in verse 4, and, and he wanted the strong. Again, the, the Gentile portion of the church not to misunderstand what he was saying about the weak, again, the the Jewish part of the church, that what he was saying about the Jews here and and the weak, that the the strong, the Gentiles, were not to misunderstand that, that, that this in any way to mean that he was minimizing the importance of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so when, in Psalm, when he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, as he did, uh, principally addressing the strong, uh, the Gentile portion of the church in Rome, uh, Paul wants us to know that the Old Testament scriptures are, are to have a place of authority in our lives, even as Christians. He's not dismissing that. When he's speaking about the weakness of the weaker brethren, 
Uh, he, he is not saying that you don't have anything to learn from the Jews. You don't have anything to learn from who they are or from their scriptures, much less to dismiss the importance of the entirety of the Old Testament just because by and large they struggle in this area of, of Christian uh, liberties. And he declares that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our learning, not just for the Jews under the Old Covenant, but they have something to say even today to us as Christians. There is an entire world of things that we would not understand as Christians apart from the Old Testament. We would not know anything about the creation of the heavens and the earth. We wouldn't know, we'd be completely in the dark about the creation of man. We'd be in complete darkness related to the fall of man, why the world is in the broken, sinful, uh, sin-addicted condition uh, that it's in. We would have no explanation for the existence of sin, all of its consequences, and so much more in the Old Testament. And Paul tells us that as we see in the Old Testament Scriptures, not only God's promise uh, uh, of a coming Messiah or Savior to save us from the consequences of sin and of the fall, but then how unfailingly God makes these promises related to a Messiah to come, but then how unfailingly, and to know anything about the Old Testament, even as we're in the book of Ezekiel on Sunday nights, and you realize how much God had to do to protect His plan of salvation that He had entrusted to the bloodline of a very wayward people known as the Jewish people. And yet as unfaithful as they were, God was faithful to keep all of his promises despite them in bringing Jesus through the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and through the tribe of Judah into human history. God had been faithful in all of it in the coming of Christ and resulting in a hope, an absolute confidence that Everything else that God has promised us in Christ that is yet to come, that just as everything He promised under the old covenant concerning the coming of Christ, He will keep every promise that is yet to be fulfilled. That one day we will absolutely stand on that crystal sea in heaven as Christians, and we will cast our crowns before uh, God the Father, and we will praise Him and adore Him in the glory of heaven forever and ever. And Paul is communicating this uh, uh, to that, the, uh, specifically to the strong there in that, that uh, church in Rome, declaring it, it, the Old Testament Scriptures teaching us that our faith in Jesus as our Savior is absolutely well and perfectly placed. And as regards the Gentile Christians, as we'll see in just a moment, the Old Testament Scriptures provide us with the confidence that God has always been concerned about the salvation of the Gentiles, not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. By the way, this uh, verse here, verse 4, it constitutes a very, very strong rebuke to a trend that's occurring in Christianity in America today. 
and the idea that Christians and Christianity needs to unhitch itself completely uh, from the Old Testament that it really doesn't have anything, uh, you know, fundamental to say to us as, uh, as Christians, and really it's become a hindrance to us trying to explain this God of the Old Testament to a modern Western uh, culture, and so we should make the New Testament uh, our, our sole uh, focus. And there's a, a, a famous uh, preacher who is heavily followed by many other preachers and pastors and Bible teachers who spoke of this, this, import, this need to unhitch from the Old Testament. And, and it created a great firestorm. But all he did is say what many, many uh, uh, pastors within the church are doing uh, today without saying that. And that is to completely ignore the Old Testament Scriptures and to raise up congregations that know nothing about uh, the Old Testament at all. And this idea that we ought to separate ourselves as Christians or to ignore or de-emphasize the Old Testament is so dumb that it, it boggles the mind. As the old saying goes, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new uh, revealed. They are absolutely inseparable. And I would contend that no one, no one will have a full appreciation of Christ or a full understanding of God or any New Testament truth uh, without an understanding of the Old Testament. And we will talk about that another time. But this is part of what Paul is saying to that Gentile section of the church. He wrote to Timothy in this regard. And he said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, old and new, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Paul wrote in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, and beyond, that the events of the Old Testament were given in order, recorded in order that they might be an example to us. Well, Paul goes on further here in verses uh, 5 and 6 and, uh, and declares that this instruction that he's giving to them and to us, it will, it will allow the worship of God uh, to remain uh, at the forefront of the focus uh, of, of a church. And so, if they have the attitude that Paul is, is declaring here and, and calling us, uh, we ourselves as well, uh, this attitude toward one another that Paul writes about in these two chapters, this same attitude that Christ has toward the weaker and, and the stronger, then he says, will possess a unity that will allow us to glorify God and to worship God in the local church in a way that blesses him and, and blesses us and it blesses a world that's, that's watching us. It is this instruction that keeps the church, any local church, from being hijacked by, again, these inconsequentials. Never look at the Pharisees and say, I'm incapable of that. Never look at the Sadducees and say, I'm incapable of that. That represents no temptation to me at all. All of these things represent a temptation to us today. We can become modern-day Pharisees, even within the church, 
by elevating these kind of things. And any time these kind of things are elevated, they are elevated at the expense of God. And any time our attention is drawn unduly to these kind of liberties, it is time that attention could be put upon God in worshiping Him and in glorifying uh, Him. What Paul says here is very, very contemporary and very, very uh, necessary. All disunity in the church distracts uh, God from being uh, front and center uh, in the church. He goes on in verse 7 and says that we're to receive one another, uh, weak and strong, Jew and Gentile, in just the same way that Jesus has uh, received us. Again, Paul makes Jesus the example, and the idea is that if Jesus received me, then I ought to be able to receive any other Christian. I mean, unless I think I'm some kind of a bargain for God, uh, when God saved us, He didn't get a bargain. He got a project, as Gail Irwin uh, says, and He did with every single one of us. And, uh, and so if Jesus received me, I should be willing to receive anyone that he has likewise received, whatever their convictions on, on Christian liberties. There's an old saying and, uh, 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 about running into a friend of a friend, where sometimes you've perhaps heard it in your life where someone will say, well, any friend of his is a friend of mine. Any friend of Joe's is a friend of mine. And then they proceed to shake your hand or give you a hug. In other words, uh, we so highly esteem our friendship with Joe that we're willing to make a friend of everyone else who, uh, in, I- I- else that's in a friendship with Joe. And this is what Paul is saying as it relates to the entire church, every single Christian where any friend of Jesus is a friend of mine, where I esteem so highly my friendship with Jesus that I'm willing to make a friend of everyone else who has, um, is a friend of Jesus as well. In verses 8 through 12, as we close here, Paul reveals that, uh, that Jesus drew uh, the Jews to him and the Gentiles to him on uh, two uh, very, very different uh, levels. You notice in verse 8 that he became a servant to the circumcision, to the Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. In other words, when Jesus uh, came to offer salvation to the Jews, how did he come to them? He came to them as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that God had given concerning the coming of the Messiah. And as a result, uh, supreme in the, the, the praise of the Jews of God concerning their salvation was His faithfulness to the Scriptures. And that's how the, uh, the Jews came uh, to Christ. And, and, and that was the, their focus. But the Gentiles, it was, uh, uh, God came to them on an, a completely different level. Uh, when the Gentiles get saved, they don't get saved on the basis typically of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet. The average, this is wh- whoever it is, we've got the Blackhawks coming in, and uh, the SEAL team's going to hit the property at any time. So um, if you're, all right. 
they've headed to Big Valley. Praise the Lord. So, somebody call Rick and let him know that they're, they're coming. But in terms of, of the Gentiles, when they got saved, they didn't look and say, ah, yes, this is all in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. They're completely ignorant of it. And so when God saved them, they realized that, uh, that they were saved solely on the basis of God's uh, mercy, which is what he brings out in verses uh, 9 through 12. For the most part, the promises that God made to the Gentiles of his interest in them, of the fact that one day he would save them, uh, he did not make those promises directly to the Gentiles He made those promises to the Gentiles through the Jews. That's where the promises came from. That's where all of the verses that Paul closes this uh, section with come from. It is God speaking to the Jews through the Jews uh, of his concern for the Gentiles and not speaking of it directly to the Gentiles uh, themselves. The Gentiles had no real promise Uh, promises to claim like the Jews did. It was just pure mercy that God was interested in the Gentiles. Paul brings it out with tremendous clarity in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 where he declares of us as Gentiles that at, at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. And that was our condition. And as Gentiles, we owe our salvation completely to the mercy of God uh, on a level that is even deeper uh, than that of the Jews. And so uh, the Gentiles, Paul is saying, the, the, the largely strong members in terms of liberties of the church there in Rome, Paul is saying, do not be arrogant in your treatment of the weaker, of the Jews by and large. Do not be harsh in your treatment of them. Uh, you got into the kingdom of God by the skin of your teeth. I mean, solely on the basis of uh, the grace of God. And so you shouldn't be putting anyone down. And all of this, as Paul puts it there in the latter part of verse 9 through verse 12, was in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He quotes Psalm uh, 18 and verse 9, uh, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 10, Psalm 117 and verse 11, Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 12. And he does so all in order to communicate that while the salvation of the Gentile world was always God's intention, Uh, It was uh, an intention that he communicated uh, to them through the Jews and through the Jewish Christians. And that ought to always make us indebted to uh, the Jews and uh, to the weaker brethren uh, in in that regard. Paul closes all of this with a a benediction there in verse 13 where he uh, writes, And now may the God of hope fill you with all hope and peace and believing, and that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, when Paul addresses this issue of Christian liberties, I don't know what percentage of us in this room uh, sits here over the last three weeks and even this morning and looks at it and says, uh, this is a perfect waste of time. Or, uh, I can't wait until we move on uh, past all of this and it is something, it it can't happen uh, uh, soon enough. But when Paul writes to the church at Rome, he is addressing a problem there. And he is, uh, uh, if it is not an active fire that is burning in the church of Rome, it, it has the potential to become one. And so Paul's instruction, when he writes what he's written here, very pointed instruction, very direct instruction, Paul knew uh, that this would be hard. He has rebuked both strong and weak. He's rebuked the entire church. And he has put all of them in their place. And, and he knows that he has done that. And he wants them to understand his heart toward them. You know, one of the problems that everybody's aware of now, you know, that we've got cell phones and emails and all this kind of stuff that weren't around at the time of Paul. They weren't around at the time of Paul? Yes, they weren't around at the time of Paul. And so one of the problems with the printed message is they get misunderstood because we don't know the voice inflection, we don't know the heart in which certain things are being said, and so what is being said can be, can be completely misunderstood. And Paul recognized that about uh, the written word, and so he closes this section by very, very clearly making his heart desire uh, known toward them and his motivation for writing what he had, he, he had uh, written and that what he had called on each of these groups to do uh, was not impossible, that the uniting of, uh, of uh, the absolute fullness of human diversity, not only Jew and Gentile, not only strong and weak in terms of, of liberties, But look at the diversity that constitutes the body of Christ, Uh, Christians all around the world, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, every education level, everywhere in terms of uh, socioeconomic uh, level, every kind of personality, every kind of, of life history. He saves all kinds of people. As broadly diverse as the human condition is, he saves people out of them, uh, uh, those conditions. And then he brings us all together in churches like this and into the body of Christ as a whole, the church as a whole, universal in the entire uh, world. And that the idea that we can all come together in that kind of incredible diversity and be united and make God the single great focus of our assembly, Paul is saying, you need to know it's not hopeless. And that God can do it and He will do it. He puts their eyes upon the Lord in all of this. And that He will do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the result will be this beautiful peace and joy in a local church. And again, you just stop and think about the incredible ongoing miracle that the body of Christ is in the world. 
that the church is in the world, that the kingdom of God is in the world. Nothing draws this kind of diversity together in the way that God Almighty has done uh, through His Son. It is a marvel, this miracle of God, and all in order that uh, the world uh, might see something very, very, very manifestly different about it and uh, in our lives and in our interactions with uh, one another, in our unity, in our ability to get along with one another and then be drawn to it uh, themselves. And here, Paul says, is the part that each of us are to play in preserving this unity, uh, at least as it uh, relates to Christian liberties. And so again, this, this church, the existence of this thing called Christianity, it is an absolute marvel in the world. It is an ongoing miracle uh, of God. Uh, you think about, just think about how God holds, they talk about what is it, that, you know, the it's the, it's, I don't know, I'm not a science guy, but you know, you try to put the atoms or whatever the things are together and then they, they go apart like this. And uh, in terms of the atomic structure of everything, and there's everything about our lives is intended to blow this whole thing up. I mean, just the diversity that's within this room. And yet we come here week in and week out and throughout the week and we get along and we grow in the Lord together and we magnify Him in this place. And all of it is, is a work and a miracle of the Holy Spirit to say nothing of what, uh, what the Lord is involved in His part in keeping this all together all around the world. It's a marvel. And then to look at this and say, in effect, thank you, Lord, for this instruction that allows us to cooperate in, uh, with the work of your Holy Spirit in this magnificent thing called the body of Christ of which we are, uh, have the incredible privilege of being uh, a part of. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we tell you this morning what you already know, but it does us good to say it. We recognize within our own flesh, and, uh, and we've seen it in our own life experience as Christians and, and in Christians in general, this tendency to, to fight at the drop of a hat and to destroy the beauty of what only you know you uh, invest yourself in in terms of power and love and gifting and, and all that comes from your throne, Lord, to hold all of this together, not only for our good, but for a world that is watching. And we pray that you take these three weeks that we've looked at these Christian liberties and the principles that are here, the teaching that is here, the motivation of love that you've pointed us to, the example of Jesus, and that these things would mark 
how we handle and conduct ourselves and engage in Christian liberties, not only today, but for the remainder of our pilgrimage, that we might come in some absolutely infinitesimal way and add at least that little thing to all that you are doing, Lord, that your church might be a place of edification and blessing. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.